This is the last of three um, meditations or sermons on events of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. In the last four or five hours, which began with them going to the upper room to begin to share the Passover meal, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. He had shared the Passover meal with them. He had exposed his betrayer. He had settled this dispute among them as to who they thought was the greatest. He had warned them about a significant battle that would take place for their souls. And then he had spent a great deal of time teaching them and encouraging them and telling them things about his departure and why that was significant. In some ways, it was like a family meal, but in other ways, it was nothing like a family meal. And now that meal was over, and they left the upper room, and they began to make their way to Gethsemane. After these things, Jesus said to them, and after singing psalms, it would have been the Hallel Psalms, of which Andrew read one of them. They were Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. Jesus went out from the upper room and made his way as usual with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. This was not the first time Jesus had taken his disciples there because Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. The exact chronology of the events of what took place on this walk is not easily discernible. But one of the gospel writers suggests that it was while he was on his way to the garden that Jesus warned them about some of the difficulties that were to come. How he was going to die and how each of them would be scattered. But he also assured them about his resurrection. It's fascinating that even as Jesus approached this garden, he was convinced of his resurrection by his father. But Peter in particular was put off by this and he defended himself quite strongly, defended his loyalty to which Jesus said to him, I assure you today on this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In fact, none of the disciples knew the frailty of their hearts. What is certain, though, is that Jesus' mood changed abruptly as they entered the garden. It would seem that the calm and the peaceful surroundings of the upper room, the relaxed atmosphere of sharing a meal together, and the joy of singing those psalms together, was now replaced with an inner turmoil as he begins to be sore amazed or appalled and agitated by what he's about to face. Now, as never before, all of God's ways and God's will billows begin to sweep over him as the psalmist describes. And as we realize when we read these accounts, truly, Jesus is the man of sorrows. And so we come then to the vocabulary of emotion, which we find dotted throughout all of these accounts of the last of the visit to the garden. And as we were reflecting on these, I was thinking about the reality that familiarity with something 
can result in a carelessness towards that thing. You all know how it happens. We have seen something or read something so many times that we think we know it. So we skip over words and phrases that are before our eyes, thinking that there's nothing we haven't heard or nothing that we haven't seen or nothing that we can't learn again. We take the biblical accounts of Gethsemane, for example. I think how many times have we read these accounts? How many of our Good Friday services have been framed around events in the garden? When you hear Gethsemane, what kind of words or phrases pop into your mind? This year, as I was thinking about Gethsemane and thinking about what took place there, I was struck again by the vocabulary of emotion that each of the three gospel writers uses. As one Frederick Leahy wrote, the agony of our Lord in the garden was a once-for-all event. There is nothing in human experience that is remotely like it. And it is bordering on blasphemy, he writes, to speak of someone's Gethsemane or Calvary. So I want us to just lay out these accounts of the garden side by side and pick out for them first some of the words that are used to describe the emotional state of Jesus. This is not a psychological investigation, but it's helpful for us to see that the emotions of Jesus are laid bare for us for a reason. It's not necessary to go and find the Greek words, but it's helpful to know the Greek words that are used because they do shed light on our understanding. Matthew uses a word sorrowful, lupeo, which some of the other writers use. Another word is adomayo, which means deeply distressed or even horrified. He began to be deeply distressed and horrified, says Mark. He took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. It's a word that suggests bewilderment, anxiety, and near panic. The feelings of somebody who is thinking to themselves, how am I ever going to cope? There's another word, paralupsos, which is also translated sorrow. It's the same word that we find in Psalm 42, verse 5, where it says, O my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? And Jesus, as he enters the garden, almost immediately he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. So racked was he with the emotional pain that it was almost to the verge of bringing him to his death. Deep sadness, abiding sorrow. The burden was so life-threatening to Jesus as he entered that garden that an angel would be sent to him. And I think in part because he could not die in the garden. He had to die on the cross. There's another word that's used, ekthambeo. It means to be alarmed. It's the same word that the women used when they came to the empty tomb and they looked inside that tomb and they saw an angel sitting there and they were alarmed. And the angel said to them, don't be alarmed. 
It's the word that's translated sore, amazed. Here, Mark uses the intensive form of that word. It means to throw into terror or amazement, to alarm thoroughly, to terrify or astound. It says he took Peter and James and John and he began to be sore amazed. And then Mark uses a word, agony, agonia, which points to severe mental struggles and emotions and emotional strain. See, Gethsemane, Gethsemane means oil press. And here in this garden, Christ was beginning to be bruised and pressed without mercy. You turn to Luke's account, and it's a little bit different. It's different from all the others in that it contains details that they don't contain. Most of the language is not found in Luke, or the language of emotion is not found in Luke, but Luke captures a depth of emotional pain from a different perspective. Here's what Luke writes. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. See, the intensity of the emotional pain that Jesus experienced, Luke describes through physical phenomena. His agony reached such an intensity that his capillaries burst, make, mixing his blood with his sweat. How horrific must have been a sudden awareness of what awaited him. His blood began to pour out before anyone laid a hand on him, before ever a thorn was crushed on his head, before ever a lash of the whip was laid across his back. But Luke tells us something more about the nature and the depth of his emotional suffering, which hints at the depth of it, because there we read that God sent an angel to strengthen him. One commentator recounts the following conversation between one minister who dropped in to see another minister who was preaching a series on angels. And the one preacher asked him, he says, will you be so kind as to let me know when you're going to take up the case of my favorite angel? Well, but who is he? The pastor said. Oh, guess that, came the reply. But I can't tell you his name, he said. He is an anonymous angel of mine. Can you guess his name? The pastor gave up. And the other went on to tell him, it is the one who came down in Gethsemane and strengthened my Lord to go through his agony for me, that he might get forward to the cross and finish my redemption there. I have an extraordinary love for that one. This Rabbi Duncan, this pastor, then expressed the hope that if he arrived in heaven, and there was always an ift with this particular man of God. He says, first I shall look for the face of my Lord, and then I shall inquire for the angel that came to help my Lord in the hour of his agony in Gethsemane. You think about it, Luke is here describing heaven's resources. 
the ability to remain steadfast and endure the path of suffering ahead. God did not set out for Jesus, though, no, a path of escape, but rather he set out to help him endure and to go through the trial that he was facing. We thank God for such heavenly help. But notice the strengthening was not so that Christ could avoid the trial, but so that Christ could make it through to the end of the trial. It was strength so that he could bear even greater anguish. And consider the angel's comfort. Whatever it was, we know that this would be the last comfort that Jesus would experience until he was raised by the Father from the grave. And so it's with the language of emotion that we make a few of the following observations. And these are observations that are not solely mine. Some of them are, but they are gleaned from writers who have poured over these texts. Frederick Leahy and Donald MacLeod and Frederick Kumacher. First of all, it's simply that there is this a sudden, assaulting, horrifying terror. I've already described that one of the words used is a word that means horrified. It's not an ordinary word for being distressed or troubled. Frederick Kumacher says, Mark makes use of a word in the original, which implies, implies a sudden and horrifying alarm at a ter ter terrific object. That Mark evidently intends to suggest by using the word that the cause of Jesus' trembling must be found not in what might be passing in his soul, but in something from without that forced itself upon him. Something approached him, he writes, which threatened to rend his nerves and the sight of it to freeze the blood in his veins. In other words, there was something outside of himself that he saw. It appeared suddenly, it approached him, it already was approaching when he first saw it. It got the drop on him, it forced itself upon him. It was a menacing horror. Jesus saw, as it were, a living nightmare. Could it have been the lurid shadows of hell and the forces of evil that were arraying themselves against him? As the text says, he began to be sore amazed which seems to reinforce the sudden horrific nature of what came over him. Again, one Frederick Lee, he says of the man of sorrows, Christ has known sorrow before this, but the assertion that in Gethsemane he began to be sorrowful indicates a sudden steep descent into billows of distress. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. And you say, well, what are you talking about, Paul? Well, another individual said, this is not the place for theological tourism. It's where the believer must linger, watch, and pray. It's hard for us to imagine what the Lord is going through. It's completely beyond our ability to comprehend. It takes us completely out of our depths. And we wonder, can we even study this? Is this something that we should even be looking at? Is it dissecting the emotional pain of another person? And yet Jesus chose to have Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this for us. 
and I think in part it's because it, it gives us insight into the nature of our redemption. That should draw us to our knees and fill us with gratitude and thankfulness at what our Lord endured for us. Another individual said, Our behavior should not resemble a pickpocket who snatches salvation from Jesus' pocket and puts it in the bank without recognizing the suffering that puts such wealth into his pocket and ours. We move from the emotion of, or the language of emotion, to just another passing observation. And it's simply the need of friendship. I think sometimes we tend to downplay the humanity of Jesus. Let's not do that for a moment. Jesus didn't want to be alone at this time. He needed company. And so the authors remind us that Jesus took three of his closest friends. It's as if he was saying to them, you know, guys, I can't bear this alone. I need your companionship. I need your physical presence near me as I face what I'm about to endure. I think what I find even more astonishing in all of this is that Jesus asked them to pray for him. Oh, certainly to pray for themselves as a way to watch that you might not enter into temptation, but Jesus asks them to sit and watch with him. I think nothing illustrates the reality of the Incarnation and the sense of what went along with it more than this. But there's a strange paradox, isn't there? The Son of God asking mere mortals to watch and pray with Him. Remain here with me, He says. Stay awake with me. It's pretty obvious that of those three friends, not one of them understood the depth or the nature of Jesus' struggle. Three times Jesus asked them to watch and pray with him, and three times he came back and found them asleep. But that doesn't discount the fact that our Lord felt such a strong need for friendships. I think we all need to realize that we need friends to walk with us in life. I think of Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. I've been thinking of this a bit. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what it means to love one another, is to bear one another's burdens with them. And who does that best but one's friends? I was thinking also of the first few days of Job's suffering when his friends, I think, got it right. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Shakespeare in one of his plays wrote, Those friends thou hast and their adoption tried, Grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. It's like Shakespeare is saying, If you find a friend... Wrap it around yourself with a hoop of steel. 
and don't let them go. I've quoted this before, and I keep coming back to it because I am realizing more and more it's true. J.C. Rao wrote, The world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship, he writes, halves our troubles and doubles our joys. You see, if we remove friendship from the world, half our joy go out the wind, goes out the window with it, is what he's saying. This is because friendship is the ultimate end, I think, of our existence and the highest source of our happiness. Friendship with one another and with God is a supreme pleasure in life, both now and forevermore. Nobody can fully enjoy life on earth alone. Friendship is one of the greatest sources of happiness. Yet it seems all too foreign in the world in which we live today. Without friendship, make no mistake, we are lost. And so Jesus had cultivated friendships. And he, as he faced the most significant trial of his life, he invited three of his closest friends to join him as he walked through it. And finally... Just some thoughts on the significant source of his anguish. I think it matters that we work this through a little bit in my head, and I don't know if I've got it entirely clear. But it's the prayer itself that Jesus prays that gives us a glimpse into his anguish. And you might notice as you read these accounts, it's not that Jesus gently lays himself down or kneels down, but it's almost like he is forced down on his face to the ground. The pressure of what he has experienced is so great that it just collapses his body onto the ground. Mark says he fell to the ground. And three times he seeks relief from his father. And we wonder, why doesn't this cup pass him? Why is his prayer not answered? What accounts for the strain that we've already referenced in the intensity of his struggle, which was manifested in his sweating clots of blood? Even to this point, as you read this text, you find that Jesus had the Father's approval, and he called him not only his father, his pater, but he called him Abba. Abba, my dear Father. Father, oh Father, he cries out. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but the Father is not silent. He sends his angel, as we've already looked at, to strengthen him. Yet it would seem that this is, Jesus still wonders if there's another way of escape. We don't know when the angel came to him, but maybe it was at the end of the three times praying. Maybe it was in the middle, but he continued to seek the Father and see if there was the possibility of another way to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Even though he was strengthened, Jesus knew that there was a cup that he was about to drink. An unavoidable cup. And the anticipation of it was crushing. Because at the end of drinking it, he would say, my God, my God. Not Abba, not Father, but my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? 
He wanted God's will to be different. He wanted it to be other than what was in front of him. He asked, could there be some other way? He knows it's God's will. This, the cup that Abba, his father, had given him. But it's like he says, Father, could I have another cup? Is there another way? We have to be careful, I think, too, as we look at this text. Because some would say, well, why is it that Jesus pulls back from such suffering when so many others have suffered perhaps even more greatly in their physical bodies than Jesus? I think we need to understand that what's taking place here is far greater than physical suffering. Jesus is walking down not only a road less trodden, but a road that nobody else will ever walk down. It's a cup that only one man could bear. The Son of God and the Son of Man. And so he shudders and he hesitates. I think. For a moment, I think the salvation of the whole world, the whole of God's determined counsel hangs in the balance. It's suspended on the free, unconstrained decision of this one man. The writer of Hebrews captures it this way. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I think part of the answer to Jesus' suffering is found in stories like, or accounts like Exodus 19, 16 to 19, and Hebrews 12, 18 to 21, where they describe the stark terror of the scene confronting them as people are converging or gathered around the mountain of the Lord. And there the holiness of God is symbolized by this uncanny, unfamiliar physical phenomena, a thick cloud, smoke, lightning, earth tremors, a fearful trumpet vast, a voice of a, of a, a like thunder, dire direct warnings that anyone who would so much as touch the mountain would perish. They were being warned to stay away from the presence of the holy God. And here in, in Exodus 19 is one of the supreme Old Testament revelations of God as an absolutely overwhelming might, a holy other who brooks no disobedience and no familiarity and with whom the sin can not enter even into his proximity. Jesus is horrified, not at the physical suffering that he is about to endure, He's horrified that he must drink the cup of the Father's wrath and judgment against human sin. The Son of God's love must drink the cup of God's wrath. And I think only one closest to the heart of God could really sense the horror of what it would mean to be forsaken by God. To understand this cup is, I think, to begin to understand the desire for Jesus to avoid it. 
It's a specific cup. It's a cup of God's wrath and judgment on human sin, as I mentioned. And you can read that in various scriptures. And what Jesus dreads in Gethsemane is his own imminent encounter with the holy. It was the thought of, uh, of bearing the Father's wrath for sin, as Isaiah 53 tells us. And the Lord had punished him for the iniquity of us all. It was the thought of being made sin that horrified Jesus. His hesitation to embrace this mission to drink this cup is in fact a godly one. And you only need to read some of the prayers of the righteous in the Psalms and, you will, and, and to work this through. And, and you'll ask yourself, and as you do, you can ask yourself, well, what is the ultimate, what is the unbearable terror that one can face? Well, it's to be cut off from the light of God's face. Face. It's to be under the outpouring of his anger. It's the passion of the godly man to avoid anything that would bring God's displeasure upon them. That is the one thing that the godly man does not want. And so you think, well, how could the perfectly righteous Savior, how could he not ask? for a different way than to be made sin for you and I. I think it's only as we begin to gain an appreciation for the heinousness of sin and for God's wrath that is against sin that we even begin to come close to thinking and feeling what Jesus must have thought and felt. And it's only as we gain in ourselves this holy aversion to sin that we can experience anything of the horror of being stained and tainted by sin. I don't know if this helps, but think for a moment of the worst person in history that you know or you're aware of. One whose crimes or actions against others just repulse you. Now think of all of those acts, that guilt, that shame, that hurt being attached to you. As though you were the one who committed them. As though you were the one who perpetrated those acts. As though you were the one who experienced the shame or the guilt for those things, and you rightly recoil from that. And we're sinners. But Jesus is holy. He was not sinful in any way. And the thought of bearing all of that guilt and all of that stain and all of that pollution must have been revolting for him. No wonder he was horrified. The agony in the garden opens a greater window into the agony of the cross. If to bear man's sin in God's wrath was so terrible in its anticipation, what must its reality have been like? You can really only say, hallelujah, what a savior. There's a purpose in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's summed up 
so well by Paul in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, the horror Jesus experienced in becoming sin and bearing the Father's wrath for that sin should be only matched by the joy, the unspeakable joy that we can experience by becoming the righteousness of God in Christ. And so it is because Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath to the very last drop that we are able to drink the cup that's described by the psalmist in Psalm 116, the cup of salvation. Two cups, one bitter, one sweet. They have to go together. You can't have the sweet unless somebody has drained the bitter. And it's the first cup that guarantees the second cup. As the psalmist says again, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. See, the real truth is that while Jesus came to this earth to preach the gospel, his chief object in coming to the earth was that there might be a gospel to preach. As we're going to sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid all the penalty for your sin. He bore all the wrath that God had directed towards you for your sin. Will you not run to him and take refuge in the shadow of his cross today? Father, we come before you today. We don't really understand at all what Christ experienced but we have it put out on paper for us at least to reflect on. I pray, Father, that there would be some gratefulness that overwhelms those of us who have already put our trust in Christ. A gratefulness that is expressed towards our Lord. That not only did he bear your wrath and your judgment for our sin, but the fact that he would even submit to make himself sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God through him. Father, would you impress upon us the magnitude of that transaction? Would you impress upon us the ease through which we can be recipients of that tra transaction? For all the work is done, all we need to do is put our trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, here's my sin. Jesus, give me your righteousness. Oh, Father, would you call many to yourself in these days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.